This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. And a guten Erev Shabbos. I'm Mashi Lipsker, delighted to be with you on this Rosh Chodesh. Erev Shabbos told us, very special time of the year. Today's the first day of the month of Kislev, the month of Chanukah. It's called the month of light, Chodesh HaUrim. And it is indeed a very special, special time, not only on the historical calendar, but the Parsha just talks to us so personally, so relevantly. It also is the 10th Yortzeit of the Kedoshim of Mumbai, including Rabbi Gavriel Neuer and his wife Rifki Holzberg of blessed memory, who together with five others were murdered in their Chabad house in India and whose two-year-old son, Moishala, survived, only surviving member of the family, rescued by Sandra, and who were devoted young emissaries of the Rebbe, whose love and devotion continued to reverberate in the lives of countless people whom they helped and who come forward at the most unseeming times to tell the story. And it's a special, special Shabbos where we're going to read a parsha which talks to us about parenting. A parsha where we encounter full-on the second of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, Yitzchak and Rivka, a parsha where we hear about Rivka's pregnancy with twins, the birth of those twins, the upbringing initially, which then becomes two separate people going on two separate paths. The righteous Yaakov, the wicked Esau, and then early on in the par- parsha, Esau, Esau, sells his birthright to his brother Jacob. Ultimately, the highlight perhaps of the parsha are the blessings, the Vayitan Lecha blessings that are given by Yitzchak to Yaakov. But how he got those blessings is an intricate story that speaks to us not only about the upbringing of our own children, but it speaks to us about the mandate of the nation, the mandate of how the Jewish nation needs to approach living in the world, embracing the world, but remaining above the world. And so the story begins that Isaac and Rebecca, Yitzchak and Rivka, have no children for the first 20 years of marriage. And then their prayers are finally answered, and Rivka, Rebecca, is pregnant. And she suffers intense pregnancy pain. 
and Hashem informs her that she's pregnant with twins. And they would be opposite, not only physically, but morally opposite. And that each one's success in pursuing his path in life would be at the expense of the others. Spiritually speaking, when Hashem told Rivka, two nations are in your womb, two powers will diverge from within you, the upper hand will pass from one power to the other. If one gets strong, the other will get weak. And that's the balance. And metaphorically, Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau, represent the two neshamas, the two souls, and their opposing drives that exist inside of each one of us. Each one of us has tendencies toward spiritual, tendencies toward material and physical. We each have an inner Jacob. That's our neshama, our divine soul, with its godly yearnings and its godly drives. But we also have an inner Esau, an inner Esau. That's our nefesh hachiyunis, our animating soul, our nefesh habamis, our animalistic, materialistic soul, with its selfish urges and drives. And when our divine soul asserts itself, it perforce weakens our materialistic tendencies. It weakens the drives of the animating soul. But how does our spirit, our neshoma, our divine soul, overcome the animating soul? How can we hope to succeed in this physical world being human beings with human drives and human desires, how can we hope to become more spiritual? What is the method? What is the way? How difficult is it? And Hasidic teaching tells us it's not that difficult. That essentially, in the same way that light overcomes darkness, our godly soul can predominate. Light doesn't have to actively exert itself. To push away the darkness, light just has to shine. In the presence of light, darkness just isn't there anymore. Darkness, in truth, stops to exist. Negative ceases to exist in the presence of goodness. As soon as we let the holiness and the goodness of our divine souls shine, the selfishness disappears. How? By studying the Torah and observing the mitzvahs. Even a little bit. Even a little bit. The selfishness of our animal soul disappears. We all struggle. We yearn for a more refined, sensitized life. And very often we think, how in the world can it really be accomplished? I'm just a prisoner, as it were, 
to who I really am. That's me. That's how I feel. That's how I function. I'm trapped. I do want to be more kind, giving. I do want to feel altruistic. I do want to feel the holiness, the light. And the answer is, when one power exerts itself, it grows strong and the other one grows weak. The upper hand will pass from one power to the other. We can make it happen in our own lives. The parsha begins with teaching us it's just about action. It's just about a decision and a choice to opt for light, for the study of Torah, for the performance of another mitzvah. It sounds so holy and removed and in the books. And in truth, it's not. It's very much part of who we are. And when we opt to behave in that way, an amazing thing happens. A great joy fills us. An intrinsic vitamin or mineral has been given to us. We'll be right back after this. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. A good Ner of Shabbos, a good Chodesh. It's the most wonderful, wonderful time of the year, and we're reading a parsha that really talks to us. And the name of the parsha is Toldos, Toldot. And that means generations. That means the history of Isaac and his sons. That means the growth of the nation. The nation is being born now. And the second of the matriarchs and patriarchs, Isaac and Rebecca, Yitzchak and Rivka, have to do their part. Things will change now. Things can never stay the same. In the time of the righteous Avraham and Sarah, there were different times in their lives when they had to grow their family and start the nation. But in order for it to continue, more qualities are needed. Sarah and Avraham were the epitome of chesed, free outpouring love. But as we said last week, there came a time when Sarah realized that she could not just be out there for everyone, welcoming everyone. She had a child to raise, and there had to be parameters and the Parsha this week begins now with this pregnancy. Yitzchak has a wife. And this wife came from a place which made her, as our sages describe, as a rose amongst the thorns. The place she came from was a place that was expert in trickery in cheating, in negative moral behavior and values. And the family that she's going to grow is a family of purity and holiness, focus on its mission, 
giving to the world. Strange that she should have had to be born in such an environment. But as we're going to see, her upbringing would contribute additional qualities that were very much needed in raising her family and taking the nation to the next level. Rivka was a righteous woman, but she also had a sharp sense of perception, which was developed growing up where she was in a place of negativity, a godless place. And when she became a mother, that sharp sense of perception came into play very clearly. When she was pregnant, she sensed that this pregnancy is not ordinary. And through her Ruach HaKodesh, her prophetic spirit, she already sensed the difference between the two children that she was carrying. Yitzchak, on the other hand, was engrossed with the holy words of Torah. He was a tzaddik. He was someone who had risen from level to level, raised by the righteous Avraham and Sarah, to the point where he was willing to be offered as an offering to Hashem on Mount Moriah. But they had two different children born to them. And how were these children going to be guided, molded to the best of parental ability? And how were they going to be blessed by their parents? Rivka heard the voices of both sons. And she understood what was behind it. Rivka heard each one's struggle. Asaph, Asaph had a cry, a yearning, but it was the cry of the hunter. He yearned to go out into the world and to get more and more of the world. Yaakov, in him she heard the yearning, the cry of Torah and prayer. And she was able to understand the nature, the aspirations of each one. In fact, very early in their lives, Rivka sensed that each one of her sons had chosen his life's path. Asav, unfortunately, despite being raised by her and in her home, had chosen, as we all can choose, but he had chosen a path of moral depravity. It was so reminiscent of her youth, all that immorality that surrounded her when she was growing up. Yaakov, Jacob, in contrast, was imbued with these spiritual ideals that she had found so captivating in Yitzchak, her husband. And when she sensed them, she was willing to leave home at the age of three those ideals were what drew her, and it gave her the strength to abandon her home for a life in another place with another family, her life with Yitzchak.
And now she saw those same qualities in her son Yaakov, and she loved him. It says that Yitzchak loved Esav. How? And we're told that Yitzchak was deceived by the external trappings that, that Esav was flaunting. How did Esav deceive his father? Very similar to Rivka's brother, Lavan. She knew the name Lavan means white. He wanted everyone to think he was so above board. But he was a swindler. He was a cheat of the highest order. And so was Esav. And Esav constantly asked his father questions, complicated halachic questions, hair-splitting questions. And Yitzchak didn't suspect, he didn't see behind the facade. Yitzchak thought, oh, he's so stringent in his observance. In other words, Esav was a hunter in every sense of the word. He trapped his father with his clever talk. But Rivka more and more saw the potential, the capabilities of her sons, and she strengthened herself that each one should get their deserving share. She greatly respected her husband, but she understood that she could better perceive her children's inherent qualities. Every time Rivka heard Yaakov's voice studying the Torah, her love for him grew and grew. And she was prepared to do everything in her power to ensure that the cries of the righteous Yaakov be listened to, even if it involved deceiving her husband. And now the Torah moves forward and her plan will come into effect when the Torah tells us as follows. When Yitzchak had grown old and his eyesight was fading, he summoned his elder son Esav, for which purpose? In order to bless him, to give over the divine blessings that had been Abraham's and that had been given to Yitzchak, be passed on to the next generation. And in his perception, it was Esav. And Rivka overheard this. And Esav goes out to the field to trap some gain and bring the game home to his father, which is what his father had asked him to do before he would give him the blessings. And that's what happened. Rivka then calls Yaakov. She says, I heard your father speaking to your brother Esav. Now listen to me, my son. Go to the, to the sheep. Take two choice young kids, goats. I will prepare them with a tasty recipe, just like your father likes them. You must then bring it to your father, so he will eat and bless you before he dies. Rivka, the mother, is teaching her son to deceive? Yes. She tells him, you present yourself as Esau, for Yitzchak's eyes are blind. Yaakov says, wait. What if father touches me? He'll realize I'm an imposter. And then he'll curse me instead of blessing me. And what does Rivka say? Well, she has a backup plan. But it's more deceit. 
she puts, she says, we'll put hairy goatskins on your arms and you'll feel just like the hairy Asav. And then she also said something very puzzling. She said, let your curse, any curse, let it rest upon me, my son. Just please listen to me. And we need to come back to that. So what happens? As Yitzchak finishes blessing Yaakov, Esau comes back and discovers the truth. He realizes that instead of cursing Yaakov for deceiving him, Yitzchak at this point actually adds a blessing to him. As soon as Esau tells his father, What? You gave away the blessings? You promised to give them to me? My brother cheated, he tricked me. And when Yitzchak hears that Yaakov had taken the blessings, he actually blesses him again. He says, Gam baruch He should also be blessed. The blessing should remain his. The question is, what was going on here? Normally, a mother can see very clearly. She has intuition about her children. But something bigger than just motherly instinct is guiding Rivka here. As the Torah tells us and the commentaries tell us, Esau was a murderous, blatantly evil hunter. Yaakov was a man of the books, busy studying, internalizing all the principles and ideals of Torah. We have to say, how could Yitzchak make such a mistake that forced Rivka to act so boldly and even to actually deceive her husband. Wouldn't it have been better if she just come to her husband and discussed it openly? And why would Yitzchak bless Yaakov again? What insight did he get that made him reaffirm the blessings he'd just given to Jacob, which were originally totally intended for Esau? So, our commentaries tell us that when Yaakov was receiving the blessings, his father Yitzchak saw in divine prophecy the destruction of the holy temples. And when he saw that, he continued to bless him. But shouldn't have that caused him not to bless him, to withhold the blessings? If he sees the destruction, what caused the destruction of the temple? That the children of Israel sinned. And when he saw the children of Israel sinning, should not, that not have convinced him that Yaakov doesn't get the blessings? But let's look at this. Yitzchak knew that the, gro- the goal of the child who would succeed him was not to be outside of the physical world but to fight and overcome negative forces by living in the world. The task is the son would have to transform negativity into holiness. And really, Yitzchak believed that Jacob, Yaakov, was unsuitable because he was very removed from the world. He wasn't in physical reality. He was busy studying. Yaakov was Yoshev Oiholim, a man of the tent, He was a scholar who closeted himself. He found refuge and joy in the study of Torah. 
But to stay in the yeshiva walls is to remain remote and distant from the world. You need a lot less strength. If you're cloistered in the monastery to withstand the temptations of the world, you're not in the world. And he thought, well, this man is not going to go out into the world. He doesn't know about the world. He's the scholar. He's behind the walls of the yeshiva. And the example given is of a cold room. We want to talk about how do you change the physical reality into holiness? How can you be totally living a normal, as it were, life and yet elevate life, living, interactions, personal relationships to a holier level? So the example, the analogy is of a person walking into a cold room. There are three ways to maintain body temperature. You can put on a warm coat, or you can leave the room, or you can light the fire. You can put on a warm coat, and you'll be warm. You can leave the room and go to a warmer place, and you won't be cold anymore. Or, number three, you can light a fire. Similarly, a cold environment, an environment that is not in keeping with our own moral values, an environment that can hurt or be detrimental to our own standards. How do you deal with it? Well, there are three ways. First, you can put on a warm coat, which means you take care of yourself. You strengthen yourself inwardly. You Make a determined effort not to be affected by your environment. Or you can leave. Sorry. So if, if I'm wearing that warm coat, it's not a complete victory. Because if I'm not vigilant, if I relax my self-control, the world is still there. The cold is still there. And I can capitulate. I could leave the room, which means I will separate myself from this environment. But again... It's not a complete victory because I removed myself from the temptation. I haven't met the challenge. I haven't af- affected my environment. I just went away. But the third approach, lighting a fire, that means you influence your environment. You change your environment. You raise your environment to a higher level. And that's the complete triumph over one's surroundings. Because you don't have to avoid the dangers. You've removed the dangers. And that is what a Jew needs to do in the world. And that is what Yaakov wanted to bless his child to be able to do totally. And that is why he wanted to choose Esav. For he felt that Esav was a man of the world. And he mistakenly believed that he was out in the world to light fires, to deal with the world, meet it head on, and elevate it to holiness. So Yitzchak thought that Yaakov was busy confronting evil with the first two approaches. He strengthened himself. He put on the coat. He was wearing the cloak of Torah. Or he left the environment. He went to the yeshiva. 
He was busy enjoying being in the house of Torah study. And he didn't believe that Yaakov had the power to overcome the negativity, and he knew that Yitzch, that Esav was out in the world, and he believed that he did have that power, although he did have a predisposition to evil. His father also knew that he had great spiritual potential. And in truth, Yitzchak was correct in this evaluation. Esav had tremendous spiritual potential. But unfortunately, when he chose to behave in an evil fashion, he destroyed his potential. Originally, Esav may have tried to ward off the evil, but he eventually succumbed. Rivka, on the other hand, perceived that the reason Yaakov was involved in the study of Torah wasn't just, it wasn't to stay distant from the physical world. He was preparing. He was drawing strength from the Torah to empower him to overcome the challenges that he would face in the world. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. So we've said that Yitzchak understood that the son who would carry on the legacy had to be in the world and uplift the world. And he actually thought that Esav would be the chosen one, not to be removed from the world as Jacob Yaakov seemed to be, not to be involved with self, but to be out in the world, to be a hunter, in other words, to track down and elevate whatever he could find in the world to godliness. Rivka loved Yaakov. Yitzchak loved Esav. Because each one had a perception that the other one would be the right one to carry on the legacy. Rivka understood that the reason that Yaakov was in the yeshiva was not to escape from the world, was not to be out for himself. He was there to prepare and be fortified for the time when he would fully have to go into the world. So the question is asked, how was it that these parents saw things so differently? And how was Rivka able to discern Yaakov's inherent hidden potential to transform negativity into holiness? He seemed such a mild-mannered, studious type. Why was it Rivka who could sense this strength, the stamina in Yaakov, and saw that it was missing from Esav, while the father Yitzchak was blind to the truth? And basically, it was their upbringings. Rivka had that extraordinary perception gained through her negative childhood. And everything that Hashem does in the world, Hasidus says every descent is for the purpose of a greater ascent. Anytime there's something seemingly negative in our environment, it has tremendous potential to be elevated to high levels. Rivka was the rose amongst the thorns. The thorns, the evil, the negativity of the world represented in this parable. 
and Rivka is the rose that grows. As the rose, she overcame the thorns around her. All around her, there was there were thorns. There was evil, trickery, stealing. She remained the rose, pure. So now, from personal experience, and the inner strength that she needed as a child, as a young woman, to ward off all this evil, and actually transform it, learn from it, and not be affected by it. She detected that same quality in Yaakov. Yaakov will have the ability to be the rose, even in evil exile, even in negative environments. The rose would always remain separate, distinct, fragrant, separate from the thorns, although in that environment. But Yitzchak was raised by the saintly Avraham and Sarah. He never experienced sin. As we said, he was so pure, he was almost offered as an offering to Hashem. Because he wasn't exposed to sin, it was hard for him to appreciate Yaakov's ability, Yaakov's capacity for transforming evil. So from Yitzchak, Yaakov got his power of the holiness of Torah from the father, from his mother. She taught him how to use this power, the power of Torah, in being involved with and transforming the physical world. She educated him on that score. She taught him how to challenge and overcome sin, and her plot in the Parsha this week speaks to us. Incredible. So basically, she tells him to go get the sheep, and then they're going to put the goat hairs, sorry, to get the, the kids from the sheep area, goat hairs on his hands, and he goes in and he steals the blessings following his mother's instructions. And that's when Yitzchak realizes his mistake. Any rational convincing Rivka could have done could never have matched when the penny dropped. She could have attempted to talk to her husband. But here what was needed was that he should realize for himself, and she set the stage. Now he saw that Yaakov did have the power to overcome evil. In fact, he saw that when it became necessary, he would even use trickery. The garments of the world, the world is a place of lies. This is not a true a world of truth. This is a world of tr- lies and deception. In its essence, the world seems to say, I am. I am a tree. I am a cloud. I am a flower. It doesn't say I'm the word of God bringing me now into being, which it really is. Nothing is anything except the power of God constantly bringing it into being. And now the father saw that, yes, this son is able to use anything he needs, even trickery, the garments of the world, to achieve the goal, a spiritual elevation. Jacob, indeed, could descend into the physicality of the world and transform it.
And during the blessings, the same point is being reinforced. Yitzchak envisions the destruction of the holy temples, and yet he continues to bless his son. Why did that convince him that he could keep giving the blessings? Because the destruction of the temples proved to him that this person before him was going to sin, but that he would repent. In other words, he would go into the world. He would fully involve himself in living in the world, working in the world, interacting in the world, and he would fall into the clutches of sin the clutches of evil. But that just proved him, this man's not going to be removed from physicality. And he even prophetically saw the repentance, the return that would follow. And through that, the overcoming and transforming of that same evil. And it's compared to someone who falls into a pit. If you never fell in, We don't know if you'd have the energy to pull yourself out. But Jacob and his descendants had the inner stamina and spiritual strength to fall into the pit and to climb out again. And Isaac saw that Yaakov's descendants would undergo a long, painful, arduous, gallus exile. But eventually the world would emerge enriched because of their service, rectified because of their service. And those are the things that could only take place as they played themselves out with everyone doing their part. Rivka directing her son, her son listening to her, and the pennies dropping, the father realizing who was standing before him. And that is even the lesson in the words that Rivka uses when Yaakov says, but what if my father will curse me instead of blessing me when he realizes I'm an imposter? Her answer, let any curse be on me, my son. It doesn't just tell us about Rivka's greatness. Everything that happened to the matriarchs and patriarchs is an instruction for the Jewish people. It was a lesson as to how the Jewish nation would endure in exile. Rivka was saying, to receive the spiritual powers from those blessings, Mesiras Nefesh self-sacrifice is necessary. When we serve God, when we try and raise our children according to the best of our ability, when we try and be all that we can be if our service is limited by our own calculations. Then we're limiting our own dedication, and we cannot reach those unlimited powers inherent in the powerful blessings v'yitan l'cha. When Yaakov was worried that his father might curse him because He wasn't walking the straight line. He was acting deceitful. Rivka said, my son, don't make those calculations. She explained that you have to receive the blessings that bring infinite powers to the Jewish people. 
These are blessings essential for the nation's future survival. And so she said to him, if he curses you, let the curses be on me. Would any son do something like that and allow his mother to be cursed? But that's not what she was saying. The message he got was, no matter what the personal risk, for the spiritual welfare of your people, for the future of your child, you take any risk. She was saying, it's not about me. It's about the destiny of the child and the nation. She was willing to take personal, uncalculated risks for the benefit of the Jewish people. She was willing that people should say, what's with him? Look how strangely he behaved. And there are those who want to talk about that. But if the goal is a correct one, if your focus is correct, and you are listening to what the Torah says, it doesn't matter if you're not so comfortable. And Yaakov was not comfortable. This was not his personality. Being enthusiastically involved in mitzvahs sometimes makes you look foolish. Sometimes it's beyond what human rationale can understand. It's called Mesiris Nefesh. Rivka here was demonstrating an uncalculated enthusiasm for mitzvahs and for holiness that's the essential ingredient for surviving the long, difficult exile. And history has proven time and again if we're going to have an apathetic approach to our Yiddishkeit, it's, God forbid, a prescription for obliteration. How has the Jewish nation, the children of Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, how have they persevered through their stubborn vitality, insistence, defiance, their verve, in observing the mitzvahs. Stubborn persistence, I will not give up my Yiddishkeit. Stubborn persistence, the Mashiach is coming. And in fact, the Rebbe has said that we need that stubborn persistence now more than ever in believing that the Mashiach will come. In fact, even in demanding that Mashiach comes. And sometimes it looks silly. It may appear foolish, this uncalculated desire for the redemption. But that's what's going to make it occur. When we show our inner strength, that is what's needed at this time. And that's what Gabi and Rifki Holtzberg demonstrated going to India, starting with nothing. And Thousands of young Israelis passed through their doors. Thousands of people were fed in their home. And the seeds that were planted then have since then sprouted into many strong trees. We're in a parsha now that is connected to our destiny. There is a lesson for each one of us 
a determination and a love that darkness is dispelled by light, by action. This is the month of light. Our actions change the darkness into light. May we be blessed with a Shabbos that is holy and uplifting and a month ahead where not only it's metaphorically called the month of light, but where the light actually shines for each one of us in our lives and then out to the whole world at large. Good Shabbos.